All right, this morning we are in John chapter 6 again. Yeah, this is four weeks in a row. I know that. But we are finishing up John chapter 6 today. But what I'd like to do as we start to look at John chapter 6, I want to go back and kind of give a type of outline that we can see throughout this chapter. I want you to see that there is a particular pattern happening here, and, and there are really only four things being said on repeat. There are four things, I say being said, maybe four things happening and being said on repeat. And I've labeled these things A, B, C, and D, and we're going to look at them, and then we, we end with E, which is, which is going to be at the end, it's the only time it happens. So A, B, C, and D, these four things have been happening on repeat. So let's just look at what these things are, and I'll give you some examples from the text. Okay, in John chapter 6, we first have what I'm calling A, the declaration. And the declaration that's given is, believe in me, I am the bread of life. We see this happen several times, and I'm just going to give you... Uh, uh, Three of them, John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. That one's pretty easy. John 6, 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He continues to tell them over and over, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And then he'll go into something else and he has to return to it. That's what's important. Notice the gap, verse 35, and then verse 48, and then verse 55. He says, I'm the bread of life. Something happens, and then he has to say it again. I'm the bread of life. And then something happens, and he has to say it again. I'm the bread of life. So what are these other things happening? The second thing happening that we can see is the observation. The observation is that although he's saying, I am the bread of life, there are those who are not believing it to be true. So we understand why he keeps saying it over and over. So we see this happen in John 6, 36. I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He says, I'm the bread of life. You're looking at me, but you're not believing what I said. And then he says it again, John 6, 64. Uh, he says, there are some of you who do not believe. So Jesus is standing there in front of them, getting, giving, them giving them the declaration, I'm the bread of life. And then he's also sitting there saying to them, but you don't believe me. I'm telling you I'm the bread of life, but then I'm also telling you that I know that you don't believe me. Okay, he does this several times. And then he gives C, the explanation. He gives the explanation three times. So he's saying, I'm the bread of life. You don't believe me. Here's why. And it happens in order. You can see in your text how it happens. A, B, C, D, C again, A and then D, A and then D. Uh, D is always there, uh, the reaction of the people, but we see the explanation. 637, here's the reason why. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 65, he said, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Okay, that last reiteration, he's saying, can't you see this is why I told you this? I'm telling you I'm the bread of life, but you are not believing me. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. Now, these are all Jesus' words. So, then there's D, 
the reaction. How do people respond when Jesus goes through these things? The people grumble continuously. That's their response. Uh, John 6, 41. So the, grew, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. John 6, 52. The Jews disputed among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? John 6, 60 and 61. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? All right. And then we see E, the conclusion, which we will touch on today. Now, of all these things, I, I, I think that, first of all, the declaration we've talked about, Jesus is the bread of life. B, the observation, but yet you do not believe, will be covered today. C, the explanation that he, he gives in verse 37, 44, and 65 is very difficult to understand. In fact, later on he says, this is really difficult to understand. He says, do you take offense at this? So the explanation we're going to look at in detail today because it's difficult. And then the reaction of the people is to grumble. I think as grumbling people, we get that one. That's what we want to do when Jesus speaks into our life. We tend to grumble about it. We get that one. And then we're going to see the conclusion at the end. Okay, so let's look at the explanation. Number one, you can follow with me in your notes today. Number one, this is what we looked at last week and summarized by saying basically exactly what's in the text. All those given by the Father are raised. Raised to what? Eternal life. We know that. They're not raised to anything else other than eternal life. They are raised to eternal life. John 6, 37 through 39, I'll just read it. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So Jesus is saying, the Father has given me people. I will not lose those people, but I will raise those people up on the last day. That's exactly what he's saying. Uh, we need to understand what he's saying, and, and uh, we went into a little detail about that last week. Okay, so there is a group of people, though, not given by the Father. And again, none of this is uh, controversial at this point. Okay, if you, if you think this is a controversial subject right here in this moment, uh, this is not controversial, um, that there are some who are not saved. We all get that. Some people are not saved. Therefore, we conclude they were not given by the Father to the Son. That's a pretty simple concept. So the, 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 the question here, the debatable question that people have is how, by what mechanism are people given from the Father to the Son? That's, that's the debate. But we see in Romans 8, 29 and 30, if you're not familiar with Romans 8, 29 and 30, there's a, there's a theological uh, concept here or a little term that we use called the golden chain. Uh, if you've heard of that before, this is the golden chain. Romans 8, 29 through 30. And, and this is why it's a chain is because all these things are linked to one another. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. And here we have it. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what we see in that chain of events is that all those who are called are at the end glorified. There are none who are called who are not glorified. Okay, that's the chain of events that we see. It's pretty clear. So 
what are we saying here? As we look into the text, the explanation, number one is this, is that all those given by the Father are raised to eternal life. Okay, nothing controversial there. Verse 41. If you look at your text with me, verse 41. We're going to look at the second thing. This is a text we have not covered yet. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, before we get into this text, I, I will be upfront with you and say that there is much debate surrounding the text that we're reading today. Um, if this is an interesting topic to you and you want further study, I have two recommendations for you. I brought them with me. Uh, number one, Norman Geisler, Chosen But Free. Okay? There's option number one for you. Option number two, The Potter's Freedom, a rebuttal to Norman Geisler's Chosen But Free. Okay? So there you have it. If you're going to pick one, you need to go with the potter's freedom because he re reiterates Norman Geisler's points here. Okay, if you're going to pick one, go with the potter's freedom. This is by James White. Um, you can see mine has lots of notes and bookmarks uh, in it. Um, two good books there to go into some detail. Now, I say that to say I'm not going to answer all your questions today. Okay? I, I would not be honest to say that I am. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to lead us through what seems to be the best and easiest and most logical and scripturally coherent concept, a way to understand what the text is telling us today. I will say that this is a difficult topic to comprehend, to accept, and to study. All that being said, let's look at it. All right, so... You may, you may not even, uh, some of you may, may not realize. Let me also say this. I understand that some of you coming in here today, theology, learning a new theological concept is not on your heart today. What is on your heart is a difficult circumstance that you're facing. Your hard life. I get it. But this is part of consecutive expository preaching is that I don't just wake up and choose what text I'm going to preach on. But here we land, here we are. And I believe fully that the words of God will bring you joy, comfort, and encouragement to your heart, rightly understood, led by the Holy Spirit. All of the Bible is good, and we seek to understand what he has said to us. So with that said, let's look at it today. I know this may not be highest priority for you in the moment. I get it. It may never be high priority for you. I understand. Uh, but I encourage you, take notes today. Think about this topic and this subject. Uh, if it interests you, please read about it and research it, okay? Ask me questions. 
That's okay. Not during the sermon. <laughs> Ask me questions afterwards, and we will freely talk about it. Okay? Here we go. The Jews grumbled. The word for grumble here means... Uh, Caleb didn't start my timer, by the way, so I have no idea how long I've been going, so it's free form today. Grumble to complain, to express discontentment. We get that. Uh, unbelieving people, void of the Spirit, grumbling about the words of Jesus. Ever heard that? People who don't even have the Spirit of God in them debating what Jesus said? That's a situation you don't really want to be caught in. Uh, people who don't know what they're talking about, grumbling about Jesus Christ. They said, Jesus said he is from heaven. Listen, I know Jesus is not from heaven. You know why? I know his mom and dad. See, case in point, Jesus is not from heaven. I, I know Mary, I know Joseph. I know where he came from. Um, they don't get it. They're not understanding who he is. And he already told them, you don't get it. You don't understand. I told you I'm the bread from heaven, but you don't get it. You still think we're talking about physical, earthly things here, but we're not. We're talking about heavenly, spiritual things. Okay, they didn't hear his words. What he's about to tell them, he says, don't grumble about these things. Here's why. He says, Jesus, uh, do not grumble among yourselves, verse 44. Here's why. Because no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44 is our verse for the next few moments together. Okay? All those, point number two, all those drawn by the Father are given. And if you go back to point number one, all those given by the Father are raised. You can see a chain of events already happening here, and the chain of events is tied to all of the passages we've read so far, even today. What would put an end to their grumbling over the nature of his identity? He says, I'm telling you plainly who I am, but you can't hear me. So he goes deeper. He says, no one can come to me. Let's just focus on that little part. No one can come to me. Left to his own, man is self-seeking, not God-seeking. Left to his own, man is self-seeking, not God-seeking. If this is true, then there would be a natural reason why no one can come to him. Because no one is seeking God, but... They're seeking themselves continually. Is that true? John has already told us this in a couple of different ways. I'm going to look at two. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, now pause right there. If they did receive him, what does that mean? It means they were drawn by the Father and given by the Father. They believed in his name. He gave them the right to become children of God who were born. How were they born? Not of the blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but they were born of God. John 3, 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Do people come to the light? Yes. What does our text in John 3 tell us? Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Does that mean we were those people who didn't do wicked things? 
Because it says everyone who does wicked things doesn't come to the light. They hate the light. So what about me? I came to the light. Oh, so I wasn't wicked. uh, There we go. That's the answer, right? Obviously not. How many people are wicked? All. So who doesn't come to the light because they hate it? All. That's the answer. All hate the light. Why? Because you are sinners by nature. And what does that mean? You don't want your sin to be exposed. It makes you hate the light and you don't come to the light. Two texts outside of John. Romans 3, 9 through 12. This one's pretty clear. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have all charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. All there met Jews and Greeks, by the way. We're going to come to a point of all later. All met all types of people. Not every individual. Uh, But, and this, he means everyone. All types of people. All people everywhere are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now it becomes personal. No one has done good. Not even one. How many people seek for God? No one seeks for God. No one understands. And no one seeks for God. That's what the text tells us. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is something about our nature that makes us incapable of pleasing God left to ourselves, of seeking God left to ourselves, because what do we want to do? We want to please ourselves and our flesh and our sin. And don't you feel, even today already, that that has been your desire, to please yourself? Have you been free from that desire even today? That's what we want, isn't it? I want to please myself, because those sinful things are still lingering in us. We are not completely sanctified. We will not be until we are in his presence fully. So we have this and we taste it. I want to please myself today. I want to please myself. No, 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 no. I want to please God. I want to please God. No, I want to please myself. But I want to please God, but I want to please myself. How can I do both? So we, 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 we have this inclination and desire. Now, before that, we could do nothing but please ourselves. But we need to continue on. It says, Left to his own, man is self-seeking. Yes, we get that point. No one can come to me. Why? Because naturally he seeks himself, not God. Next, unless, unless, here's the catch, unless the Father draws him. The only way that man can come to God, come to the Son and be raised to eternal life, all these are linked together, is if the Father draws him. What is the nature of this drawing? How does God draw a person to himself? That's a good question. I want to look in particular at this word for draw because it only occurs six times in our New Testament. The Greek word is helkuo. And I'm going to read for you a couple of the instances where this word occurs so we can get a feel for what this word means. John 21, 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Haul it in is our same word for draw. Pull it into the boat. John 18, 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it 
and he struck the high priest, servant's ear. To draw his sword was that same word there. Acts 16, 19. But when her owners saw their hope was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace. They dragged them. Same word for draw. Getting the idea? John 12, 32. I'll wait on John 12, 32. To haul it in, to draw it, to drag it. Here's the idea. Being drawn is a one-sided action. Being drawn is a one-sided action. That is the literal meaning of this word. It is to be drawn by one other thing that is active while you are passive. You do not help to draw yourself in, but you are drawn by an external force. You draw a sword. You drag people somewhere. You haul a net into the boat. You just get the one-sided action there. That's what the word means. Now, remember, remember Greek is, is a lot more descriptive in its words. Just like we know the word for love, we have one word for love. The Greeks had multiple words for love, and they all mean different things. Well, same, word, same thing with the word draw. There were multiple words that mean draw, but we only have one. They had several. That's what this word means, to draw something one-sided while the other side doesn't help. The reason that God must draw us to himself is because we are incapable of drawing ourselves to him. You might say, I have an objection. Clearly, you don't know James 4.8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What about that one? It's a different word for draw. It's not the same Greek word. And if you go back just one verse, you'll realize that this person that's being encouraged to draw near to God already has the Spirit of God living in them. So there is never an incident where it's said, draw near to God on your own effort because it's impossible. Natural man, void of the Spirit of God, will only please himself, will not seek God, but needs the power of God to draw him to himself. Am I telling you anything you already don't know? To draw means to approach in that situation. And I will raise him up on the last day. The giving of the Father is linked to the drawing of the Father. You already see that. It's pretty obvious, right? All who are drawn are given by the Father to the Son, and those people are raised up on the last day. Let me give an illustration here. I know this is, you feel like you're in a classroom this morning. I understand. But if we don't dedicate ourselves to understanding what God has said to us, then what else are we, what are we doing? You didn't come here today to be encouraged by some catchy little phrase that I have. If you did, you are going to be so disappointed because I don't have any catchy phrases. So I don't have any catchy phrases. Uh, I, don't, I, don't even, I don't talk in a way that's flashy. But we dedicate ourselves to the word of God and what he has said. Because God has spoken to us in his word. And this is what we should focus our time on. Anyway, illustration here. Imagine you're drowning at sea. Okay, that to me is terrifying because you all know my greatest fear is sharks. I don't know why. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't go into the water past about right here about how big a shark would be. Okay, because I know there's going to be a shark in the water. As soon as I go out this deep, there's going to be a shark, just without a doubt. 
So I don't go in the water. I jump in the waves with Jane and Lena, and I act like, well, I have to stay out here because I have little kids, you know what I mean? But really, I'm not taking them out there. There's no way. I am not going deep anyway. So imagine you're in open water, and you're drowning, okay, and you're splashing. And uh, the threat in the moment is not sharks. The threat is that I can't breathe underwater. I need air. And I've been here, and my arms are weak. And you start to lose your strength, and the water closing in around your face. And you take one last breath, and the water closes, and you know you're going down. But then, splash on the top of the water, and you look up, and you see a life preserver. You have a choice in that moment to grab the life preserver and live, or to say, eh, it's too late for me. I'm going down. Okay, that's that's way to look at it, number one. Option two, the way to look at it. You are dead at the bottom of the sea. There is no life in you. And it's been a while. You can't be resuscitated at this point. A diver gets in the water, comes down, finds your dead body, and drags you to the surface into the boat. And miraculously, miraculously, life is given to your dead body. That is the way we are drawn to the Father. We are dead. A dead person does not have hands that can reach out for a life preserver. A dead person cannot hear. They are dead. But do the scriptures tell us that we are dead? I'll say this as a summary. The reason that man cannot draw himself is because he is spiritually dead. Let's look at a couple of texts together. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 9. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he, with which he loved us, listen, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. He did it. He raised us. He seated us. And that's why verse eight exists, verses 8 and 9 exist, the one that is quoted so often. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one can boast. You didn't bring anything into your salvation, but God saved you. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. God did it. God made you alive together with him. John 5, 25, listen to this one. It's the last one I'm going to give you on this point. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What dead person can hear? 
that those who were dead have been raised to life. And this new life enables them to hear. What are they hearing? Well, that's a good question. That leads us to point number three and further on in our text in John chapter 6. We talk about the, now the nature of the drawing of the Father. All those taught by the Father are drawn. And that's what Jesus continues to tell us in verse 45. So remember, in context, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then he quotes from Isaiah 54, 13. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, and truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And who will believe? Those who have heard and learned from the Father. Those are the people who hear and believe, those who have been taught by the Father. This is the way the Father is drawing, by teaching. And if you hear his voice and you learn, you are being drawn by the Father. That's what it's telling us. This is what Jesus is trying to help us understand. I think 1 Corinthians 2 helps us a little bit in this idea. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 14. But as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, did you hear that last little part? No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Therefore, in order for us to understand the thoughts of God, what do we need? The spirit of God. We need the spirit of God. Why? Because left to our own, we cannot comprehend. We don't get it. And that is what he was telling these Jews. I'm telling you, I'm the bread of life, and you don't believe me. Why? Because your ears are blocked. They're clogged. You can't hear what I'm telling you. The Spirit needs to give you understanding. Now, we have not received the Spirit from the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. The natural person, verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them. The natural person is not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God. Was it a spiritual truth that Jesus was the bread sent from heaven? That was a spiritual truth. Why couldn't they understand it? Because they didn't have the Spirit of God. They were in, their, in sin. They were natural people. So it is only by the Spirit of God that we are taught the things of God. We understand that. John 8, 45 through 47. Because I tell you the truth that you do not believe me, which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? He answers his own question. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. That sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? Or John 10, 24 through 28. So the Jews gathered around him and they said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now this is John 10. This is after John 6. He has already labored the point that he is the son of God. 
But now they're saying, hey, listen, if you're the Christ, why don't you just tell us? And Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from my hand. And finally on this, Matthew 16, 16, and 17. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, you know the rest of this, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. All right. In John 6, go down to verse 63. Yes, we are skipping that far. John 6, 63. I think now that we've gone through all that, John 6, 63 only makes sense in this context. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. You see, I told you, he keeps saying the same thing over and over. I am the bread of life, but you don't believe me, and here's why you don't believe me. But there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And that's why he said, or, and then he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So this is the explanation. That may have felt like a whirlwind to you. It did to me. But you know what? This is a text that we cannot leave. I can't, I'm not going to go by and act like it wasn't there. The text exists in our Bible. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Something we need to come to terms with. I have given you what I believe to the, be the most consistent idea to understand this text today. Verse 63, the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. This is why I told you that the, the, the drawing of the father is one-sided. Because if I grab onto that life preserver, what am I doing? My flesh is helping. Right? The flesh is no help at all. Not, not a little bit. At all. The flesh does not help in this. It is the spirit who gives life. All right, let's look at the conclusion. We're going to look at the last few verses here. How does all this come together, and of what significance does it have for my life today? That's a good question, and I hope there is some. So let's look at verse 66. After this, listen to what happened when Jesus went through all this. This is important. He has just spent 65 verses going over the same thing over and over and over. Right? Just look back at what we said at the very beginning. Look, look at your text. He, he continues to, to tell them who he is, to tell them that they don't believe, that all the, the Father has given him will come to him, and the people grumble. That's all that's been happening for 65 verses over and over again. And so the conclusion is this, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Verses 70 and 71 are very interesting. Jesus answered them, I did not, or did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? 
He spoke of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, in what way did he choose them? He cho chose them as his apostles. If he was talking about salvation, he would have used the words that he was already previously using. But he's saying, I chose you as the twelve. But listen, there has been a guy in our midst who has seen me, who has seen miraculous things, who have heard, who's heard all my teachings, and yet he does not believe. What do you say about that? That's what he says. There is even someone in our midst who was a devil. If he was going to believe, he would have believed. But he doesn't get it. True followers of Jesus. This is your last thing in your notes. True followers of Jesus are convinced that he is the only source of life. You may have questions today. If you don't have questions, I think it'd actually be kind of bizarre if you didn't have questions, um, because this this concept is not going to be understood in a single conversation, in a single study, by reading a single book, but it is going to be better understood over a course of study and approaching the Word of God for what it is. Some people ascribe to certain camps of theology. If you will notice, I never identify myself with certain camps. I never have, and I do not. Um, it's because I subscribe to what the scriptures teach. Should the scriptures fit into this camp, so be it. Should the scriptures fit into this camp, so be it. It just happens that the way I understand the scriptures happen to fall within a particular camp. But the camp does not. Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Others of you don't. So it's not a big conversation to be had. But I will say this. Do you remember at the very beginning what the problem was? Is that there were people grumbling about the words of Jesus? Do you remember that? And then they grumbled again about it. And then they grumbled again. This is not a cause for grumbling. If you understand the text today and you've heard what I said and you say, well, I don't see a problem. Fantastic. We move on. But if you read the text today and you say, but I just don't see how that could be, that's good. You need to continue to try to understand that, and I will certainly help you through that. Uh, any of the elders here will certainly help you through that concept. How does this change things in your life? Of what significance does this have in understanding this? I think the major takeaway this morning is this. I am more grateful for a Savior who doesn't depend on me for my salvation. He doesn't depend on me. I depend fully on him. 100%. I was not seeking God, and yet he sought and found me. I was not doing anything good, but only evil, and yet he died for me in the midst of my sin. I'm humbled before a Savior who loves me. I am humbled before a God who gave me life when I didn't deserve it. You may continue to think that 
Salvation is something, coming to God is something that you need to produce on your own. It's something that you need to get your life straight before you come to God. I need to get my life straight before I go back to church. I need to get my life straight before I open my Bible again. Is any of this hitting home? Our Savior saved us in the midst of our rebellion against Him. He loves you in the depth of your sin. Believe it or not. And He forgives. We need to be humble enough this morning to say that God is right and I am wrong. God is always good, and I am not. God is always faithful, but I am not. I don't continue after my salvation, placing my faith in Christ, I don't continue every day to try to hang on to that life raft or the life preserver on my own energy. He picked you up and put you in the boat. There's nothing to hang on to. He's got you. You don't have him. You have been saved. He did the work. And there you stand, saved. Broken, but saved. But when the boat reaches the shore of destination, your eternal home, you will be made completely new. This is what God has done for us. I have been praying and praying, and I told you that I knew that when we started through the book of John, that we were eventually going to land ourselves in John chapter 6. And it's difficult. And I'm not trying to say that it's not. Hear me in saying that. But what I am saying is that salvation should humble you. Salvation does not give us any grounds for boasting but the only thing we can boast in is a God who has saved us completely. That is our grounds for boasting. And if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, you are convinced that he is the only source of life and that you have it. So there is security, there is comfort, there is joy in the midst of what? In the midst of the crazy thing that you're going through in your life right now. There's where the impact settles. He has got you for eternity, should you have placed your faith in him. Let's pray.